This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill and I uh, am glad to be in our studio. We got everything kind of set up in here and it's nice to have the elk skin, you know, in here and bow spider stuff and some soundproofing. So things are coming along. You'll see some pictures here soon, but it's, it's really great to be in here. And I did want to kick off the show and just give a big shout out to High Mountain Seasonings. They're one of our top sponsors and they've done a lot for us this year. It's been great. The partnership is awesome. And I went by there the other day and they hooked me up with some really great stuff. So I'm part of a program called Leadership Wyoming. And they hooked us up with like 50 different seasonings. High Mountain Seasoning is uh, kicking off another giveaway with us, I believe. Yep. So we've got some stuff for a giveaway. We've got some PK lures, some High Mountain Seasonings, and some Bow Spider gear. So we're going to put that out there here just in the next few days. So you'll be able to go to our website and enter that and hopefully win some good stuff. You you guys hear us talking about the swag all the time and bragging about how good it is. Here's your chance to uh, get to try it out, test it out for yourself. Yes. And there's some really cool stuff in the High Mountain Seasonings portal portion of the giveaway, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. So today we got a special guest and he's highly recommended from uh, one of our previous guests. So if you guys remember, we had Hannah Stonehouse Hudson on and she said, Patrick, you've got to have this guy on the show. And I was like, well, who is this guy? And <laughs> his name is Chase Baker and he's from Grit. And I'm going to have him do just a quick introduction on himself, but he's doing some really cool things in the outdoor space and we're going to have a great show today. So Chase, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey guys, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, my name's Chase Baker. I'm a graphic designer and creative director. I recently founded my own creative agency called Grit. I specialize in helping brands and businesses get in touch with their audience and get the right message out to them with the main goal of building their brand and driving sales. My background is primarily in hunting and fishing uh, in that space. Midwest based. Uh, I'm really mainly a, a duck hunter at heart. I, I do hunt for a little bit of everything, but I, I really like the backwaters, the remote access. I do a lot of kayak fishing, kayak hunting, uh, anywhere I can kind of get away from the hustle and bustle and the crowds of everything else. Uh, I'll paddle two or three miles back into somewhere to just be the only one back there and, and not have to deal with some of that stuff. So th- that's kind of about me and, and what I like to do. Well, Chase, we're definitely a kindred spirit. You know, uh, dad had a drift boat growing up in the Pacific Northwest and we were either steelhead fishing or duck hunting. And I did a lot of drifts in the dark to get a mile, mile and a half away from the boat launch to get into a backwater sure. pond or spot and get those decoys up. And there is something to be said about first light. I don't care if you're elk hunting, turkey hunting, coyote hunting, duck hunting. There's that anticipation, that excitement. You've done all this work in the dark to get there, to be there for, you know, first light. And there's something about when those ducks commit, cup their wings, you know, and they're coming in the decoys. It even to this day gets your heart pounding a little bit. 
Oh, absolutely. It's a different type of reward when you've put in that level of work to be back there and you just know that you're, you know, your gun is the only one that's going to be cracking the silence anytime soon. And yeah, that, that's a whole different world. Yeah. And so when you were a little kid, take me back to the beginning. What really got you hooked? Like, let's say with fishing, you know, can you remember like some of those early trips and what really got you interested in that? Yeah. Yeah. I can remember some of the really early trips pretty well. I had the classic yellow Snoopy rod with the the Donald Duck bobber and you know you've got the the rope tying it to you so you don't lose it in the water. Um, I remember getting some some access to private shoreline uh, with a family friend and just ripping bluegills for hours. I mean, uh, until we ran out of worms, just one after another, pulling them out, really gullible fish and a lot of them type of thing. And from there, I mean, every chance I could get out, I would. Uh, and it, it w- actually wasn't too long before I started moving up into like beetle spins and rooster tails still on the Snoopy rod and actually wore the gears out on the reel on the Snoopy rod and had to graduate up to kind of the Eagle Claw and Zebco combo. Yeah, I I can remember doing the same thing. Like I had this black Zebco that I graduated to and I would throw Panther Martins and rooster tails, you know, for trout here in Wyoming. And it's so much fun as you're a little kid just waiting for that strike. Oh, and when you make the graduation from the kind of the float and bobber fishing to throwing a spinner or some kind of like small crankbait, you start to feel like you're one of the big guys now. Like you're you're hanging with dad and his buddies because they're throwing bigger versions of that. But you're kind of doing that same thing. You're still catching panfish and maybe some game fish here and there. I actually still have my very first rooster tail and it has one point left on the treble hook. <laughs> I, I took that thing so many times. There, there's only one of three points left on that hook. That's impressive. I don't think I have any of my lures from uh, even five years ago. I, I'm really good at finding the rock fish at the bottom of anything and (laughs) i donate them quite often don't i patrick occasionally (laughs) hey what i say is if you're not if you're not on the bottom you're not catching big fish so there is i mean i I donate a few more these days than than i used to back then Um, i mean we were mostly fishing around docks and and you know beachfront type of stuff so it wasn't a whole lot to get hung up on so how did you get into bird hunting at a young age? I mean, was it something where your dad just took you out and had you come along at first or did you start as a hunter? How did that work? Yeah, bird hunting was was kind of a, a strange path for me. I actually first got interested in it before I was old enough to hunt. I was at a local Gander Mountain and I found a, a bargain bin deal on a wooden duck call and goose call combo set. It was like the Christmas package, but it wasn't Christmas anymore. So it was only like $5 and I probably only had five dollars to my name and I, I bought this pair of calls and at that time we had a, a golf course being put in behind my parents home and they dug a, a huge water hazard but nothing was planted so it was all just mud and rock and, and timber and stuff around this water hole and my cousin and I used to sneak back there and brush in little blinds into these trenches along the water hazard and call in ducks and geese which in retrospect they were probably just trying to land there anyway despite the <laughs> fact that we were blowing calls but he and I we never looked back after that i mean that was just we were hooked on that you blow a call it changes the direction of what a bird is doing and it somehow then comes in you know that aspect of hunting just it had me hooked from day one there but it it was kind of a, a meandering path then from there we didn't have dogs nobody in my family really duck hunted you know my dad and grandpa used to kind of do the they go to the sod farms and puddle jump stuff out of the ditches here and there but you have to have 
pretty good connections to be able to do that nowadays. So I actually didn't do a whole lot of bird hunting for quite a while. Uh, it was mostly just deer and a little bit of small game here and there. And then about seven, six or seven years ago, uh, I got a rescue dog and trained it up for upland and, and duck hunting. And that, that's been such a connection to the sport and been so rewarding going through that process, putting all of that work in and then you know, being able to shoot birds over your own dog is, is a different feeling. So there is a similarity between fishing, turkey hunting, duck hunting, any of these. I really like using a dog. I have a dog and I've had several labs and I'm just a big fan of labs are great around the kids. And then it's great to have, you know, there's some other breeds. Uh, I go with a guy that's got a short hair and his short hair outperforms my lab probably 50% of the time, but sure. he's got to live with a short hair year round and I don't have to. <laughs> So I'm okay with my dog being a little slow on the retriever, the point or the flush. I'm okay with all that because she does it all. Sure, but sure. there's that similarity from fishing to hunting. And I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, like sight fishing, casting a big lure. I don't care what species of fish. There's something when you see that fish come out of the water and start to commit. It's the same thing as you mentioned, the, the birds turning to your call. It's the same thing we do elk hunting with a big bull elk, right? It's the same thing you do turkey hunting. I like that hunting that involves the deception. And I finally put my finger on it the other day of why I like that so much is because if you're just spot and stock incidental hunting, it's kind of like bobber fishing. Yeah. It's like you're there, you're present, but you're not an integral part of the capture. When you're... Right. Right. throw on a topwater or a lure or a spinner or you're retrieving or you're putting a decoy out for any bird species or you're imitating an elk call, you now are an integral part of that success and you get to prolong your interaction with each one of those. So I don't care what species, I don't care if it's in the water or out of the water, Patrick. <laughs> I just want to be part of that deception, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I, I do quite a bit of bass fishing and one of the, the hot baits as of recently is the, the wacky rig with the classic Cinco. And the way that I catch most of my fish with that and the biggest fish is I cast it out there and do nothing. And I hate the fact that the less I do, the bigger the fish that I catch. It drives me nuts. It's like I, I'm the least important part of this equation. I picked where the bait went and then did nothing. Yeah, that drives me nuts too. I, I'm a big fan of throwing big baits and working them hard and catching big aggressive fish that way. But yeah, when they're that way, that's frustrating. <laughs> Because <laughs> I got to be moving. And David, he had a great weekend last weekend. Uh, he, this is a, a good spot for PK Lures because yeah, this last weekend, yeah. <laughs> we hammered some fish. So if you get a chance, Chase, you'll have to go to our Facebook page and look at some of the pictures of David with his huge grin and his 24-inch brown that he was holding, which was his first brown. And uh, that was quite the fish to start with, but we ended up with a 24-inch brown, 27-inch brown, 22-inch Snake River cut, some really nice fish. And I just have to give a shout out to PK lures uh we had a blast um throwing pks and just spending a day on the river we had such a good time and i think between the two of us i think we caught 14 really nice fish so it was a good time the morning was a little slow for me but then uh what lure was that so it was a rattle spoon actually so it's a pk rattle spoon and it's got a little wyoming blade is what it's called off the top and it kind of clacks against the lures it's going through the water so yeah it was a lot of fun it was a it was a really good morning. It was a really great fish. I was Patrick was putting a little bit of a clinic on, but I finally <laughs> I finally put a put a big one on the bank. He did great. 
It was fun. Hey, a, a slow morning that ends with a 24-inch brown isn't a bad day. <laughs> it wasn't a slow day, but Patrick was just putting the clinic on, and I was standing there just <laughs> observing for a while. So we, we have to tell this story. It's kind of funny. He came over, and he was work, changing some lures, and I was casting this one spot, and I caught a fish. <laughs> and so, so Yeah, so then he's like, all right, I'll take your picture with it. I was like, okay, cool. I cast out a second time. I catch another fish, so he had to stop what he's doing and take more pictures. Did it again. It was back to back to back to back. I caught four fish in a row. And David's just like, can I fish now? <laughs> there was about a 10-foot rock wall that I was ascending and descending every time to come down. He was like 30, 40 yards below me. And there was this really nice riffle that I was trying to pull a mouse pattern across the top water. And I wanted to try and see if I could get one of these. And Patrick just, okay, come take my picture again. And you know, when you're, when you're landing 22, 24 inch fish, I under, I would want my picture taken. Right. So I wasn't, I wasn't uh, getting short or curt or anything. I was like, yeah, I'll come down. But finally I'm like on the fourth one, I'm like, I, by the time I get up there and get my fly in the water, you're hollering about another fish. I'm just going to stay here now. So, so the funny part is after that, I'm like, okay, I feel really bad. <laughs> so he goes over and about two casts later, I catch this 27 inch Brown and I'm like, I'm not going to call him over here. I'm not going to call him over here. So I get it in the, I get it in the net and I'm like running down the shoreline. I'm like, David, check this thing out. And he's like, holy crap. You got to understand. He's got a real nice catch and release, you know, fly fishing net is what I call it. I yeah. mean, it's, yeah. it's a night, but it's 12 inches and he's got a 26 inch fish in his net. I mean, it's sticking out both ends and he's struggling to carry it up so he can take a picture. I was like, okay, yeah, we'll take your picture. So yeah, I abandoned times. the fly rod and uh just switched to uh using some pk stuff in the spinning <laughs> rod and caught some more fish so so again go to pklure.com they've got some great deals right now if you're a ragcast listener if you put pk pro in at checkout you get 15 percent off your order they've got all their open water stuff which it's finally opening up thank goodness and uh so you can get some of their open water stuff and go hit the water but yeah, what is that promo again pk pro so yeah chase you got to come to Wyoming sometime and go fishing with us on the river. I think you would enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah, that, that sounds like a blast. But if I have to climb down a rock wall every five <laughs> minutes to take pictures of fish, you're going to get an invoice at the end of the trip. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So speaking of business and invoices, I want you to just tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of where you started in the marketing world, how you kind of got into the outdoor space and kind of what the reward has been for you in doing that. So I started off my career with Mills Fleet Farm, which is a small farm and sporting goods supply based in the Midwest. And I worked on some outdoor campaigns there. Orange Friday, Big Boys Toyland were a couple of the, the more successful campaigns that, that really did pretty well, um, specifically focused focused on the outdoor space. And from there, I bounced around to a couple different agencies and, and dabbled in a little bit of everything from consumer electronics to luxury consumer goods, yachts, kind of the full range, um, B2B, kind of all over the place. And eventually, I, I kind of got to a point where I felt like I was serving people that really just cared about making money, didn't really care about the environment the way that I did. And I, I ended up pitching for a couple of clients that were really kind of hard on the environment. Companies that were, you know, kind of bulldozing and tearing stuff down that I'm, I really am hoping that people protect. And so 
from then on, I kind of decided uh, if I'm going to be busting my butt trying to help people make money, wouldn't it really be great if it was for people that embraced my same passion that held kind of similar values? And so from there, I hooked up with an agency that actually specializes in the outdoor market and started working on brands, just I'll name a few, Swagger Broadheads, Community Attractant, Pennington Seed, Polarcraft Boats little bit with Daiwa Reels, six-hour firearms. And so being able to really kind of connect with the people that get it, right? When when you need to take a day off because it's the rut or the walleye are running, like the guys on the other end, like they, they understand because they're doing the same stuff. Really was a lot more rewarding and having those shared values with your client base. I mean, it, it's a whole different approach to the way that you're still like, it's still a job, right? You still feel like you're going to work and you're, you're getting stuff done, but it's not a job that you hate going to. You, you go to work to do something to accomplish a goal, but you're, you feel like you're surrounded by this. You know, it's not as good as being in the marsh or being on the river. But it's pretty close. And you're surrounded by like-minded people. You're promoting brands that are kind of in that same space. So it really, I couldn't ask for a better field to be in for for what I want to be doing. So you mentioned, you know, not working with brands that don't share your goals and aspirations. And that had to have been a little bit difficult. I could foresee, you know, on my end of having to partner or team up with a brand that didn't share the same goals and values that I did and how that disconnect would make really hard just to bring your passion to the forefront. So what makes a successful outdoors relation person? What what have you seen in the industry to really help guys that want to get into this industry and do what you're doing? Yeah, breaking into the outdoor space can, can be a little tough. It, it really is about relationships and figuring out who you know that's in the space. The best advice that I can give anybody trying to break into that space is to you know figure out anybody you know that's remotely involved in the outdoor space at all and try to build relationship with them, try to build rapport because they know somebody else in the outdoor space. And it's a very, very tight knit. As widespread as we all are, it really is a very small industry. And when you work on the professional side of things, people change jobs, they they work for, for different firms, different groups, but eventually you end up crossing paths with just about everybody. You can't afford to burn a single bridge there. And I, I think what a lot of people don't anticipate when they first make the move from, let's say you're going to do your same job role outside of the outdoor industry, and then you're going to move into the outdoor industry, you're probably going to take a pay cut because a lot of people want to break into that space. It's, it's a more exciting, more passionate space to be in. There's more competition in that space. So you may see a, a 20 or 30% pay cut just to move from corporate to more of a, a passion-based brand like that. Yeah. And you and I talked about that a little bit. The, uh, the building trust is such a huge part of it. And so for you, what has been probably the most successful way to do that? I mean, what's been a good strategy? Yeah. I mean, the to build trust with different people in the outdoor space, I mean, it's, it's never quite the same path. A lot of it tends to center around either showing case studies of that you've been there before, you've already done the work. Uh, but in a lot of cases, it really comes down to doing the work really inexpensive or even for free and being like, hey, guys, this is how much I want to be in this space or this is how badly I want to work with you. I'm willing to do X, Y, and Z for zero dollars just so you can see what the process looks like and what it's like to work with me. Um, and, I've, and I've done that more than a handful of times. Yeah. And I think another thing too that I've noticed over the years is if you can score the opportunity to go in the field with that person and spend some time, maybe you're fishing, hiking, 
hunting, something like that, that makes a huge difference. Oh, sure. If, if you can kind of connect with them in their own space, if, if you can get a, a prospect, whether that's somebody that you're trying to get to hire you or a potential client, you know, if, if you can go hunting or fishing or, you know, even to the gun range with them, that's a very different conversation than when you sit down at the conference room table and you're like, Hey, we're going to hammer out your marketing plan for the next 12 months. Their attitude to that is way different than when, you know, we're out on Lake Michigan, you know, trolling King Sam and her co-hos that conversation on what their plan is for the next 12 months is very different. They're, they open up their, the guard kind of comes down. The level of trust goes up a whole bunch yeah, you get a whole different level of connection if you can kind of get them into the outdoor space with you. Yeah, I can just speak a little bit to what you've said is somebody reaches out to me and it's not somebody, it's everybody every day, somebody, you know, they haven't taken the time to even know who the owner of the company is. I just get inundated with random messages of, hey, if you give me one of those, I'll promote it, right? And I'm like, uh, my, oh, I'm man. sorry, I'll, I'll say it right now. And my response is, hey, if you buy it, you're welcome to promote it, right? But I mean, I get a message, they don't even don't even address me by name, right? And then I go look at their socials and, you know, because I do take the time to follow up and I want to, you know, be as reachable and approachable to everybody. I really do. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but you know, when you're, you're talking, I got zoom meetings and other stuff to do. I can't just be social media, Instagramming 12 hours a day, all day. But if I go to your Instagram and you've got a hundred followers and no bow hunting pictures, sorry, man, I'm not sending you a bow spider, right? <laughs> if I go to your Instagram, I don't care how many followers you got. I care if you've got 150 photos of bow hunting and you're all the time posting and you're tagging people's gear and you're already doing the work. Heck yeah, I'll, I'll help you along. Sure. But, you know, if I can already see, and there's a certain sect of people out there that just want to go, hey, look at the free gear I got from A, B, C, and yep. D, right? So anymore, we, the, unfortunately, the few bad apples have kind of spoiled it for everybody that it's a lot <laughs> narrower gate and window to get into, you yep. know, pro staff, bow spider position, but so, yeah. So that being said, Chase, like what, what do you recommend people do? You know, if they want to be one of those influencers, how should they approach a guy like David or a company like PK or High Mountain? Yeah, I mean, the the way that they're going to approach different brands and different businesses, I mean, that that's going to differ by industry a little bit. Probably the easiest route to get someone's attention, if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to get hooked up with somebody like Bow Spider or, or PK Lures, Go, go out and buy the baits, go out and buy the rig, go use it, take photos, make content, show the level of quality that you're capable of. It, then, you know, then email David and be like, <laughs> Hey man, so, uh, got your bow spider. Um, here's some images and some videos that I shot. Uh, what would you offer me if I drop this into your inbox every month for the next year? Like that's a very different conversation than, Hey man, I kill a bunch of big bucks, send me free stuff. <laughs> the the they walk around the trade shows right with with basically headshots and their buck they got their buck and six headshots and they lay it on the table it's like hey look at me I'm, I'm like you know you you just hit the nail on the head is go out produce some content hand me the content and then turn around and say hey I'd like to keep doing this do you want more of this here's here's you know it's the drug dealer mentality give them the <laughs> give them the first hit free and then get them hooked I'm serious I'm yeah, sorry true. but it's it's true. right. <laughs> But if it's, it, 
if you're if you're coming I up to me with the big buck you just shot and you want me to you know sponsor you great you killed a big buck awesome good for you have a great day yeah I, I i'm of the same mindset you know it's it doesn't take anything away from what they were able to harvest what they were able to do like hey good for you that doesn't mean that it's marketable content that doesn't mean that i want my client's brand attached to what you're doing i mean i've I've gotten images from staffers of deer hanging from rafters with their head in a bucket, like letting them drip. And I'm like, I- I'm supposed to use this on social media to promote something? Like, you didn't even have the light on in your garage. Like, what are you doing to me? Um, so, uh, on the note of like buying the product and producing some content, and I just wanted to note that from a business perspective, it, it doesn't even have so much to do with that a brand doesn't want to give you free content or uh, give you free product to make that content. It's that the rate at which brands give out product and then get nothing out of it is huge. Uh, I've seen plenty of brands that companies I've worked with companies that I've owned where we have a field staff where they get their products, whatever the deal is. I've even had contracts where they're by, you know, they're contractually obligated to offer me a certain amount of deliverables and just, do nothing. That happens all the time. So going out, buying some apparel, buying some of the product, making content around that, you're just trying to show those brands that you're committed to what you're doing and you've got some skin in the game that you're not just, you know, when, when somebody sends you those lures or, or that, you know, new attracting or whatever it is, you're not just taking it and running it. Like you're already in it. You're, you're already committed to what you're doing. They're much more likely to make a deal with you. Right it's all about adding value. And I think a lot of the guys, unfortunately, they're not looking to add value for that company. They're just looking for the gear to show off to their buddies. Like David was saying, they're like, Hey, I just got this, you know, set of crankbaits from PK lures. How cool is that? Well, it's not cool for PK unless there's something that's developed because of it. Right. And so, you know, I, I think that it would be kind of helpful if you could just kind of go over, you know, if someone wanted to do that, so we know they, they go out, they get some of the gear, then they make some content around it. So to make that content, what are some of the things that they maybe should think about getting and buying so that they can make that content and make it look decent? Yeah, you you could go, you know, into uh, you know, a small mirrorless camera or DSLR. I mean that that this is excellent quality with the way that cell phones have been progressing and that is a pretty viable tool. I mean, you're getting into what is it, 20, 20 or 30 megapixel now in some of those cameras. That's plenty of resolution. It's all about the context of the shot, the story of the shot. You know, the, the guy that I was, I was saying had, had sent in a picture of a deer hanging from the rafters. It doesn't matter how amazing or how expensive his camera was. It was going to be a deer hanging with its head in a bucket. There's no camera fixes that. But if the, but if the image is compelling, you know, if it's a kid holding their first fish, um, you know, if, if it's some epic journey where maybe you didn't even get the deer, but you know, you're, you're telling the story of, of, you know, everything you went through, that's more important than, than the quality of the gear that you're putting into it. Uh, but I, I will say if you're doing video content, an inexpensive microphone, something that can help you cut the wind really goes a long way. And then having some sort of basic light to help light your scene, especially if you're recovering deer after dark or you're doing waterfowl setups before light, you know, have a small rechargeable light. There's plenty of them for under a hundred bucks that can just 
add a little bit of fill to the scene so I can see what the heck's going on in your shot. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think, you know, most people, they don't think about the resolution, the sound, the the lighting, and those are big deals. Like, it has to be compelling. Like you said, it has to look decent. Otherwise, it's not usable. Right. Yeah, the, the composition and the story, I mean, that's kind of the starting point. You know, if, if you're... You know, and the same thing goes for fish too. I mean, how many times have we seen people with a grab and grin and the fish is all covered in grass or sand because they had it laying on the beach when they were handling it? It's like, get that thing down to the water and at least rinse it off before you hold it up for the picture. Um, you know, getting some of that cleaned up, taking that little bit of effort doesn't have to be a, a $10,000 camera to take the shot. It, it can be an iPhone. Um, that That's not the end of the world, but get that composition, you know, get everything lit well then worry about you know how how nice your gear is after that fact yep on those consumables you, you've you've touched all the all the things that i'd like to see you know for deliverables somebody that's going to come out and send me something is you know it doesn't have to be the highest level resolution camera but it does need to be composed correctly you know you and then you don't always have to have the greatest composure if you have a really cool story behind the photo right if it's a really good like you said, kids first fish or kids first animal, right? We can work around a little bit of idiosyncrasy. So you can either have, you know, not very interesting content in a photo that's composed really, really well that works, or you can have really, really interesting content in a photo that's not composed as well. It still works. But if you have uninteresting content and poor composure, it's the deer head in the bucket or it's the deer hanging in the rafters with no light and no context. And it's like, okay, it's a big deer hanging in a garage that, that doesn't sell anything for anybody. I agree. Right. And that's to the point where the content isn't adding any extra value to the brand, the audience really, even when it's posted, the viewers aren't interested in it. It's going to get low engagement. Um, But like you were saying a lot, if if your if your subject is simple or the story is simple, then have really good composition, have really good lighting, and if the story is compelling, I I wouldn't say you can have bad lighting, but but lighting and quality can be forgiven a bit if the story is really compelling, if the subject matter is really compelling. I think the other thing too is maybe talk a little bit about the work ethic that's required to be like a pro staffer or you know, a content creator for a company, because I think people forget that it is something you're going to have to actually put some time into. It's like, you just don't spend five minutes and create all this content. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the dedication that someone would bring to the table? Well, it, it's worth mentioning that there's, there's different levels to these staffs, you know, there, and every brand has different names and different categories, categories to it. You have sort of Field staff, pro staff, brand evangelist. There, there's all these different levels. The labels are largely arbitrary, but some of them might be okay with just a couple images a year, you know, prime boat season or prime fishing season. Send us a couple. We'll send you a pack of lures. We're good. Some of that's sort of low investment, but if you're looking to get free product on a regular basis or you're trying to move up into getting cash compensation for things, you need to treat it as though it's a job. You, you may not actually be getting money, but th- that is a job. And in my case, when I'm on the other side of things, if I'm working in conjunction with content creators or, or with pro staff, chances are I'm making advertising and marketing assets that require your content. 
I may have a 30 second ad that needs to go out and I'm waiting for this five second clip of you hanging a tree stand. And this, this is my nine to five. I'm, I'm waiting. This, this whole spot is held up on you providing me this clip or this image for this piece. And so if it takes two or three weeks, we're burning time and money just waiting on you to email this over. Now I, I do get that a lot of these guys that are pro staff, they're, doing something very different as their nine to five. That's their nine to five pays the bills. The rest of it is their, their passion, their hobby. So I understand it might not come through during business hours, but if we're working together on a project and say, Hey man, I need a, an image of you hanging a tree stand or a video of you, man, that better come over in a day or two. And I've, I've had people that get paid very respectable amounts of money for their sponsorships take months to send content over. And I mean, I, I, we've had, I've had TV spots miss deadlines and that's not okay. There's people that are paying for that airtime and you're, you're costing them money if you're not sending them the materials promptly. So switching gears just a little bit, I think we've hammered down the consumables, the content, you know, get a good camera, treat it like a job, you know, and one last little bit of advice, go look at what other people are producing and mimic it, right? That's the sincerest form of flattery. Go look at what these companies are promoting and producing and already airing and go replicate some of that same stuff. And one more thought came to mind is, you know, if they're out doing a PK lure, well, you could also have, you know, rod, reel, line. You can be getting multiple consumables for multiple companies on a turkey hunt, on a fishing trip, on a duck hunt, on an elk hunt, right? You don't have to just, you can get the backpack, the boots, the camo, you know, you can be multiple lines of imagery because I, I could use a picture sure. of a guy standing there with camo with his bow with a bow spider and you could submit that also to the camo company that the guy's wearing. So I, I do want to add a quick flavor to that though. Um, you absolutely have the opportunity to get content for all of those, those brands sort of all at once. Um, but don't think you can take one or two images and send those to all the brands because when one brand posts that and then they see the same image on seven other pages, they're not going to be happy about that. No, I want to, with more time about, you could take 70 photos of a guy with the boots, with the pack, you know, not the same photo, right? You could highlight the boots and the fishing rod the same day on the bank and get both those consumables while you're out in the field. So I was just given you know, some context to that, but yeah, no, don't send yeah, yeah. the same photo to 10 people. <laughs> and it uh, happens. And understanding the brands too, because you might have a reel from one brand and then the competitors lure in the same shot. They're not going to like that either. So if you have like a, a Pragco in with a pure fishing with a Rapala with, you know, they don't like that very much. So <laughs> you don't want to do that. Oh, not, not on the upper end, uh, on, Low end social sharing. I mean, it, they see one of their products in there. You, you might still get a, a tag or a repost out of it. But if, if you're trying to do high end deliverables, yeah, you, you got to be smart about the branding that's in it. So taking kids fishing and hunting, that's pa- something Patrick and I are pretty passionate about. That's part of the, uh, the mission of the podcast here is to get more people involved in the outdoors. What are some activities you've come up with to really that have, have worked to get youth engaged in the outdoors? So I, I had a younger cousin that really wasn't super interested in the outdoors, but would kind of go along with just about anything that the group wanted to go do. And so we'd, we'd take her hiking and she would not hold out for real long. And 
one spring I got kind of the crazy idea that I'm going to take her shed hunting with me and then realizing that that's a terrible plan to get a kid geared up to go find deer antlers because at least in our state, the odds of finding antlers on public land, pretty slim. And so trying to keep her engaged, I developed a little bit of a, a game out of it, kind of gamified shed hunting, assigning point values to different items um, so that they had different things to look for besides sheds. Sheds were still kind of the, the top level. You found an antler, you got a thousand points and you, you're basically going to win the day or win the round if you found a shed. But I, I included things like finding animal dens. I think animal dens were worth like 20 points. Um, if you found bird feathers on the ground, that was like 10 points. If you found a spent shell casing on the ground, that's maybe 10 or 20 points. So they're just, you know, they're not going to maybe even find a shed, but they're scanning the ground. They're starting to develop those skills for looking around, being aware of what's around them. And for my cousin and for my little nephews, that that really took off. And they, they, they almost don't care about the shed aspect of it. It's just what can we find out in the woods? And it eventually got to the point that they were finding things that we didn't have predetermined values for, that they, they'd find a, a deer leg or a raccoon jaw. And they're like, well, what is this point? They're like, you just make something up, right? It doesn't really matter what the points are. You know, we, we'd take a little Ziploc bag and, you know, they, they'd find a little fragment of a bone or something. We'd put it in the bag with some feathers. And then after the trip, we'd kind of lay it all out and go through everything that was found. Um, that that worked really well for me. And I, I got a handful of kids pretty excited to, to go out. And I mean, shed hunting is a pretty rewardless endeavor for a lot of the time. You, you cover a lot of ground for usually not a whole lot of reward. Uh, and, and in my area, I've never actually found a shed while shed hunting. I found sheds while turkey hunting. I found a deadhead while I was quail hunting, sort of by accident. But I go out shed hunting, I don't find... I don't find sheds. I find a lot of sticks that look like a shed. <laughs> yep. And I think it goes with fishing too. Like I know with my kids, it's always a competition for who catches the most fish, who catches the biggest fish. We have the, the kind of funny award, like who catches the longest stick off the bottom, you know, or something like, you know, <laughs> it's like it's, somebody gets an award for something. You get a skunk award if you don't catch anything, you know. But just trying to make it fun, right, and engaging for the kids is important. Yeah, I, I think the key for, for like, the shed hunting stuff is that I had to let go of where I thought we were going to find sheds and just go with, you know, it, the kids were finding feathers, you know, in out in the open on, a, on like, a horse trail. And it's like, well, I'm probably not going to find a shed on the trail that everybody walks, but there's a bunch of feathers. The kids are out their thing, having fun. You just go with that. And it, it's sort of... It's not for what you want to do anymore. You're just trying to help them build the skills that they can eventually do what you're doing on a regular basis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when you and I talked on the phone before this, we talked a little bit about just some of your background and you had mentioned Hatchet, Jeremiah Johnson, your dad, and some of the inspirations. And I know Dave and I share a lot of that too. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that inspired you as a youth reading that material, seeing, you know, mentors in your life and how that developed you into who you are now? Sure. Uh, as a kid, you know, dad and the grownups, they always went out deer hunting and they went on fishing trips. And when you're real young, you're not allowed to go. Obviously, you don't have the, the skills to do that yet. So, I mean, part of that was just, you know, wanting to be like the older guys, right? But you want, you want to be out there doing that thing. You hear the stories. 
you can imagine what the woods looks like, but if you've never been out there, been in the tree stand, like you don't truly know what it is. And so there's just kind of this aspiration to to want to be at that level and to be like those guys and, you know, kind of jumping right from wanting to be like, uh, be like my dad and my uncles that kind of led in through grade school, led almost right directly into having to read Hatchet. Like the next year after being obsessed with wanting to go deer hunting, reading the book Hatchet in grade school and, you know, having to sort of survive from nothing with minimal tools and, you know, make your own way in the wilderness and find food and fire and all of that. I mean, I was just enamored with that. Um, And then you combine that with, you know, movies regularly on TV, like Jeremiah Johnson, who's making his own way through the wilderness, a a little bit different storyline. But, you know, just like in Hatchet, he didn't know what he was doing. He had to kind of figure it out. Jeremiah Johnson had a little bit of a mentor, but he had to learn things the hard way and develop his skills as he went. So I don't know. I, I think there's just a compulsion that I have to to be in the wilderness and to sort of be in that unspoiled natural space alone in, you know, kind of in that solitude and figure out a way to hunt and mountaineer your way through those circumstances. Yeah. I'll never forget reading hatchet for the first time. I think it was required reading in like fifth grade or something like that. And reading that book by Gary Paulson and just like, you know, it's such an intense story And then you get captivated by the fact that this kid's just trying to make it, just trying to survive. And then of course he gets stumped by the moose and all that. And, you know, it's, it's just quite the story. And so when you were talking about that, I could relate to that because I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that, you know, I wanted to go, I wanted to go try those things. And, And so it's, it's, I know for David, we did an episode on some of our favorite kids books, you know, with. Uh, Patrick McManus being another one, you know, just hilarious stories from the outdoors that just make your sides hurt because all the things that go wrong. But I mean, we grew up on that stuff and we're inspired by those. I I may or may not have carried a hatchet around on my belt for like six months after reading that book. (laughs) That's awesome. That's fine. You know, I I read uh, My Side of the Mountain and uh, I I was going to go hollow out a tree and go live in it for a while. So there's so many of those books out there now that, yeah, I mean, I'm, I hope kids get to start reading those and not just YouTube and video game their lives away. Cause there's some stories that resonate. And another one is where the red fern grows. I mean, that is, and we've touched on half a dozen right there already. So just go find an outdoor book for your kid to read and, and then take them out in that outdoor activity. I don't care what it is. Talking about the outdoor space, I mean, we've got youth that we're trying to raise and get involved. We're also trying to get more adults involved because the more people you have participating, you know, the idea is you have a bigger lobby because we're a pretty small lobby, the hunting and fishing community. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the, you know, uh, challenges or um, struggles that the outdoor industry might have in the next 10 to 15 years, some things that you see on the horizon. The the outdoor space has been pretty interesting the last like five years to watch because things were on a pretty massive and And then with COVID and shutdown, especially for where we're living, hunting was one of the few things that we were still allowed to do during shutdown. And that led to a huge resurgence. Everybody has low inventory on just about everything right now. Even before kind of the worker shortage, there was just sort of inventory shortage. Uh, But I think one of the biggest threats right now, you know, I live in a fairly rural area, but but not far from some some fairly major cities in, in my area. 
And there's there's a really a ton of traffic to really pretty small tracts of public land. And so they're with, and I'm all for new hunter recruitment of, of all ages, but you have a lot of new and young people getting into the space that have never been out there before. And just this past duck season, my wife and I had a stretch of river that I rarely see more than one or two other boats on this, this whole several mile stretch. And we had another boat set up 40 yards across the river from us, like straight, like we'd be shooting right at them if ducks landed into our spread. Fortunately, we were on an island. We just kind of flipped around and hunted the other side. But, you know, it's inexperienced people that are kind of getting out there into the space that don't have mentors or guidance that it's not as though that there's rules that they're breaking by hunting too close, but it's just, it's unsafe. And they just, they don't know that they're inexperienced. And now there's a whole bunch of extra demand on public lands. And what I'm seeing locally is more and more restrictions are being imposed on those same lands. So now, now there's three times as many people trying to get access to that land. And then the rules on that land are getting tougher and tougher. You can only deer hunt it this, these times of year. You can only turkey hunt it in the fall. And it's just getting harder and harder to access that. And then the farmland is being bought up by bigger and bigger companies. So it's it's even pretty challenging to get access to private properties because it, it's owned by conglomerations and companies that they don't want to deal with the insurance or the mess of all these guys trying to hunt it. So, you know, for my area, the next five to 10 years, I see access being a really big barrier to new hunter recruitment. And then you know, people are going to have low success rates because there's high competition and pressured animals. So what are the odds those people continue to buy licenses if every year that they go duck hunting or deer hunting, there's 10 other guys that are set up within 50 yards of them? It's just, it's a poor experience and people aren't going to want to stay with it, especially if they're new to the sport. It's definitely a downward chain spiral too, because I mean, you'll see that hunter recruitment while it's bolstered at the moment, you know, you, you see these restrictions get in place and it gets to be enough of a hassle. Guys quit going. We quit getting enough license sales. The game and fish board goes, you know what? We're not making the revenue. So we're going to have to increase tag prices. And then guys go, well, forget it. If, if opportunities down and expenses up, I'm just not going at all. And then it just keeps going down and down and down. So, you know, it's a, it's a tightrope to walk for sure. I don't have the right answer, but yeah, I, we can foresee some of that. And I've, talked about on the podcast before you know i've been to lots of lots of 3d archery shoots the last two years all over the country and i've heard you know one in three people are oh you're from out west we're we're gonna move out there how is your state and i'm like no no it's full uh, go go to colorado <laughs> colorado's wonderful there's plenty of room there <laughs> so this is my favorite question to ask uh, most guests anywhere everywhere all the time if you had to pick one thing to hunt the rest of your life with one weapon, what would it be and why? Ducks with the shotgun, hands down. Like, there's just nothing beats it for me. Uh, it, like you were talking about earlier, that that engagement, that proactive nature, the, the calling, the decoys, the different environments. Um, there's a, a couple of areas that I've hunted uh, near some of the Great Lakes waters where you never even know what type of birds you're going to be hunting. I mean, you, you know, it's waterfowl, but you might end the day with a goose, a redhead, a wood duck, a teal, a gadwall, a, like you, you could shoot six birds and never have a repeat in some of those areas. And that, that sort of unknown, unexpected. I mean, that's just, that, that gets my heart pounding like no other. How about on the fishing side? 
Ooh, fishing side's tough. I mean, I, I'm probably kind of the classic, I fish for largemouth bass and not a whole lot else. Um, that's just uh, kind of what I have access to and uh, kind of just the, my path has just kind of naturally gone that way. Uh, so if you told me I couldn't catch bass anymore, I'd probably be <laughs> pretty sad. Uh, but if I had one fish to fish for for the rest of my life, I, it would probably be smallmouth. The the smallmouth in the river system up here puts up a pretty good yeah. fight. Probably not as good as the the, the rainbows and, and the steelhead in some of your rivers, but um, they, they fight pretty hard. They do. Pound for pound, smallmouth is pretty hard to beat. But if what method would you want to catch a smallmouth in? If you know, if that's the only fish you could catch, like, are you jig fishing? Are you throwing cranks, topwaters? What what method would you use? Yeah, we we catch them doing a little bit of everything. But the I think the most fun that I have is we'll take uh, real short ultralights with like four pound mono and a pocket full of jigs, and we'll wade fish the river and just hammer them into the rocks and. We don't catch anything real big. You know, some of our, our biggest fish are 14 to 16 inches and we only catch one or two of those a day. Um, but we'll catch 60 or 70 smaller ones and they just, they pound. And when they, you get a half pound fish into the current on an ultralight with light line and you're fighting timber and rocks. I mean, I, I've had to swim underneath branches to get stuff, you know, uh, you know, have a good fish on. I don't want to lose it. And you got to duck under windfalls and kind of, you know, do the rod over the top and hold your breath underneath kind of thing. And that uh, I just, I've had a lot of fun doing that. I, I'd be pretty sad if I had to give that up. I'm, I'm going to shock Patrick a little bit. My uh, best day was 101 fish humpies pinks on, on a small, small stream in Alaska, but that wasn't my favorite day fishing. By far, my favorite day was a coastal river in Oregon. I did 60 smallies in a day out of a drift boat. And that was, I mean, pound for pound, just, it was fish after fish after fish and floating through. Oh, we finally, I put the ultralight away, right? We were using jig heads and catching those smallies. And I pulled the fly rod out with that same mouse pattern. And I caught a couple top water with the mouse pattern and, there's something when that fish comes all the way out of the water, take that mouse pattern. It's pretty cool. So next time you're doing that, don't forget, take, take a mouse pattern <laughs> along with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll have to remember that. But pick a day where they're really biting. Cause if you try to go do it any other time, it's, it's a, it's a slow, lower success. So back to fish. What's your favorite way to prepare a fish? And what fish do you like to eat? Ooh, what fish do I like to eat? Uh, that, there's a pretty long list. Um, <laughs> as long as it's favorite? not rough fish with, with scales the size of a 50-cent piece, I'll, I'll probably eat it. Top top of my list is probably perch or walleye, and then that's kind of the, the classic northern Midwest answer. Um, <laughs> crappie and bluegill are pretty good, too. Um, favorite way to prepare it? Either a little bit of salt and pepper on the grill, or just just a, a dusting of pepper and, and throw it on the grill, or um, kind of the the shore lunch style breading and and toss it in some some grease on the stove. Yeah, how about on the uh, game side, like you know, for birds or big game? What's your what's your favorite recipe? Favorite recipe? I, I kind of go in in different waves or trends with with what I prefer for wild game. Right now, I'm kind of on a on like the, the sweet and tangy kick, uh, for waterfowl, it just seems to pair the best. And I, I've done savory and I've done tacos and all kinds of different stuff with them. Um, but right now my favorite is, uh, taking like wood duck breast or mallard breast and I marinate it in like a, a teriyaki and I, I mix some other stuff in there, but it's, it's mainly a, a sweet 
mixture, marinate it for a few hours, and then I just pan sear it for a couple minutes each side so it's medium rare. Um, that's really been one of my favorites lately. Mm, that sounds good. We'll have to try that. So what's next on the horizon for you, for the business? What's going on? Well, I've got some stuff in the works that I can't really talk about. Uh, I'm working on some photography projects and some branding stuff that I will be sharing on social media as soon as that's released. Uh, clients don't usually like it if I if I draw. Yeah, we what we understand. What are those social medias? Um, yeah, you can you can find me on on LinkedIn. I, I do quite a bit of content on, through LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Instagram and and Facebook as well. Uh, my handle on most of the platforms is at down to grit. All one word, no numbers. But I mean, as, as far as what's next on the horizon, I mean, I'm I'm still building the company out. Everything is is pretty small at this point. I did just kick off an email list. So if you do want to hop over to my my website and sign up for the email list, there, there's no spam. There's no sales pitch. The, the only reason that I'm creating this email list is so I can send uh, predominantly white papers and some videos that are marketing and branding tips for people that likely can't afford my services. People that are, you know, have, maybe have a small podcast, maybe they're making baits in their garage and they, they need better reach, they need better marketing, but they don't meet my minimums to be able to, or, you know, even to be able to hire other other creatives or other firms. Those people need something. And I, I've gotten quite a few requests from people there. Hey man, how's my logo? Or, or how do I prepare? Uh, you know, I've been talking with some guys that, that do podcast stuff and they don't know how to communicate with advertisers or how to organize those materials. So if you do sign up for my email list, I'm trying to send out just helpful tips that you'll be able to grow your business, grow your product. Really pretty affordable. It, it's, it's mostly going to be low or no cost uh, tips within that. So that that's really my big effort with, with Grit right now is just to try to kind of give back to those guys that sort of feel like they don't have any options right now. So let's say somebody does want to get a hold of you to talk about your services and what you could provide them. How would they get a hold of you? Easiest way to get a hold of me is email. And that's just info at down to Grit. I'm, I'm happy for people to reach out to me or Facebook. Uh, you can find Grit on those as well. Uh, but if you want to hit downtogrit.com, um, there's a form there you can fill out. Otherwise, uh, email just uh, info at down to grit is fine. Well, I just want to say a huge thank you for coming on the show with us today. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, one last quick shout out also to Bo Spider before we get going. David's got some, so he's working on a bunch of stuff right now. He's got some projects that he can't talk about either. This um, is correct. <laughs> some new products coming <laughs> and uh, some really cool stuff. So be watching Bo Spider, bowspider.com. Check him out on the socials, follow him, share it. Um, there's going to be some cool stuff coming soon. And you know, if I hadn't have done 20 years plus out in the woods reading, you know, Jack London and Call of the Wild and stuff like that. Just wanting to be, you know, if I'd never moved to Alaska and just done that stuff, I'd, I would have never chased the dream of starting this. And there was a lot of days I didn't know if it was going to come to fruition, right? There was Patrick members, you know, I'm like, Hey, I got this idea. I don't, I don't know what to do with it. And I was that guy, right. Of what do I do? Who do I talk to? So I'm glad that you're kind of passing yeah. the torch a little bit and giving some of this information out for free, which I mean, it's all, it's all good. It's all, you know, so I appreciate it. Both spider appreciates it. And yeah, uh, for those guys out there listening, we do have some new stuff on the horizon and our socials will be the place that that will get uh, promoted. So keep an eye on it. Yeah. 
So Chase, again, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again at some point and do an update on what you're doing and what the, where the business is going here in maybe a year or two. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to check back in and, you know, see, uh, see how the tips list is going see if there's some, some new value and some new tricks that I figure out that I can pass along. Appreciate you guys taking the time to have me on the show. Yeah. And at some point come fishing in Wyoming with us, maybe. Oh yeah. I'll be taking you up on that. <laughs> we have to get some bow spider content anyway. So if we can kind of just kill two birds with one stone. If you could make it before uh, we get the hard water, you know, not the soft water, the hard water, the, the birds, you, you want a little bit of a hard freeze to push the birds this way. But if it's not frozen, I got sure. a couple ponds that will blow your mind. Uh, the way that the oh, ducks okay. come in there and they kind of just stop over on their way south but there's ponds that have two three four five hundred ducks resting in it and <laughs> you go out before dark and kick a couple hundred off throw your decoys down and sit out it's it's kind of like cheating actually <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with being on the x <laughs> all right chase again thank you for coming on man and uh everybody if you want more content go to radcastoutdoors.com and we'll see you next time 